Episode 11 of the podcast is with Damien Hughes. I've followed Damien's work for a while now and I was delighted to have him on the show. Damien talks about how to build a culture and how to use storytelling in your coaching. Please subscribe and share the show and leave a review. Also, listen up at the end of the episode for your chance to win a copy of Damien's latest book, The Barcelona Way. Welcome to episode 11 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I'm delighted to say we are joined today by Damien Hughes. Damien is a professor professor even of psychology and coaching consultant. Damien, thanks a lot for having me over at your house. I really appreciate it. It's great Um, to meet you, Ben. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm really looking forward to chatting on this. So uh, I'm currently recovering from a ruptured Achilles tendon. So... uh, I'm not as mobile as I would like, but uh, looking forward to chatting. Brilliant. No, I really appreciate you coming on, mate. And I've uh, I followed your work for a while and seen some of the stuff you did. I, I just mentioned to yourself that I was at the Cohesive Coaching Seminar um, and really enjoyed the, the chat you did over there. So for anyone that's not heard of the work you do, just fill them in on, on where you've been and, and where you, what you're up to now. Yeah, of course. Uh, so as, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, I do a few different jobs. Uh, one of the roles I do is a, I'm a professor of organisational psychology and change at the University of Manchester Met. So that looks very much at how teams and organisations and cultures come together, form together, and then how they cope under pressure. And that informs the second job I do. So I work as a consultant across quite a wide range of organisations, do a lot in education, do a lot in business. But I also consult in sort of elite sport. So um, I work for a few different teams at the moment. Uh, One is out in Australia in the NRL. The other one is uh, with the Scotland Rugby Union team. And then I consult with a few other teams in both the Premiership Football and Rugby. And then the third job I do is a write. So I've done a few different books very much around these topics, uh, trying to get the idea of organisational psychology understood and give people the tools to understand how they can create high-performing teams themselves. So the last book I did was one called The Barcelona Way that came out uh, earlier this year that looked at how Barcelona used culture as a competitive advantage. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. It's something that I'm actually working through at the moment, the Barcelona one. And uh, oh, thank you. you speak about the, the Cruyff effect, don't you, in, in the book and how that sort of filtered through to Guardiola and, and the other coaches. And, and I also find the... Um, the bits on Ibrahimovic, amazing, like how he came in, not for a, a very long period, yeah, but he yeah. was there in and out, wasn't he? Yeah, it's a fascinating culture. The idea behind the book and had been that uh, I wanted to write a book on, on culture as a competitive advantage. The publishers had said, would you be interested in doing it through the lens of a sports team? And the reality is a lot, a lot of teams talk about culture. They say, oh, we've got a good culture or there's a bad culture there. But the reality is that a lot of organisations pay lip service to it rather than use it as a proper competitive advantage. Barcelona, uh, 10 years ago, did precisely that. So they, after they won the Champions League in 2006, they, had, um, a, they went into a bit of a relative free fall for two years. And during that time, they went, how do we fix this? And they decided to put culture front and centre of everything they were trying to do. Now, in the 10 years since they did it, They've won eight out of the last ten domestic titles. They've won three Champions Leagues, having only ever won it twice before in the history. And been world champions three times in the same period. So there's plenty of evidence, both anecdotal, and what I wanted to do was get the research as well to say, this is how they, they implemented what we call a commitment culture. And So the story tells a bit about that, but equally, I hope that people use it as a way to go, this is how I can do it. I don't need to be at Barcelona. I don't even need to be in a sports team. I can contribute to creating a healthy culture because they have the tools to do so. So, Because a lot of our audience, uh, I said to you before, the sports science, yeah. uh, strength conditioning. So what advice would you give to coaches about building a culture? And I know it, it comes a lot from maybe people above those roles but um, if you took it into their jobs how would you uh, what advice would you give them in, on improving a building question. a culture yeah brilliant question I think I think culture is effectively around behaviours so a high performing culture they have the ability to articulate the behaviours the non-negotiable behaviours the phrase I use is what are the trademark behaviours the behaviours that you're famous for so at Barcelona, so a lot of organisations talk about values. They say, oh, what are our, these are our organisation values. And my challenge to that is values are an abstract term. I can tell you I believe in a value, but I don't have to 
do anything to prove that I believe in it. I can just say I do. A behaviour demands evidence. So the first thing that high-performing cultures do is they articulate the behaviours of their organisation. And So there's a great quote that the director of football, who was at Barcelona at the time, is out Manchester City, a man called Cheeky Bagheerestein, uh, gave me what I think is the best quote on culture. He said, your talent just gets you as far as the dressing room door. Your behaviour decides if we're going to keep you in there or not. So you have to be good to do, uh, you have to be able to do your job, but then behaviour defines the culture. So at Barcelona, they had three behaviours. First one was humility. So don't come in this environment showing off your wealth, your privilege, your status. We're not interested. Because that indicates you can't learn. If you can't learn, you can't get better. The second behaviour is hard work. You don't come in and coast on the talent you've got. You invest in that talent. And then the third one is you put your team above your own self-interest. Now, when you define a culture in those terms, you then say what so the technical term is a commitment culture. And a commitment culture, by definition, says you have to commit, you have to make a choice. And what happens is, when you're clear about these are the rules of the game, these are the behavioural rules, people have a choice. And Barcelona described it as the FIFO effect. Fit in or fuck off. Yeah. Don't pick and choose the bits you like. Don't say, I'll do that bit and not that bit. You sign up to all three or, or none of them. So to go back to answer your original question about if in sort of sports science or S&C, my challenge is, if you want to contribute to a culture, first of all, get the discussion going of what are our trademark behaviours that both coaches are judging, so like the technical coaches, whatever the sport is, yeah. but... What, what's going to keep a player in that dressing room? And a great way of starting that conversation is to say, when we're good, what are the behaviours that are present? And you will find these trademark behaviours. Then where I think S&C and, and, um, and sports science staff actually are integral to developing a culture is because you guys spend more time with those players than probably anybody else in the club. So you will see their behaviours consistently. So take the Barcelona example. That if a, so if you talk about humility as being a key behaviour, that means that you treat everybody with respect and courtesy. You don't come in here showing off your wealth, your status, your privilege. So when you're in the gym, if you see somebody going and sort of hammering like a, a, a junior player or bullying them in terms of behaving in a dysfunctional way, you can address it. Mm. If you see, if hard work is a behaviour and you see somebody coming in and just coasting and doing the best just to get out of doing the reps or the exercises, you can address it. If you see somebody being selfish and putting their own self-interest above the teammate, you can address it. So, I, I mean, this is a big point I make to everybody. When you understand the behaviours and the behaviours are key, everybody has the opportunity to catch people in and catch them out. So when people are not behaving in the way that you want, and you've communicated it clearly, you can address it. When they are behaving like it, you should still address that as well and just go and acknowledge it that they're doing it. And bit by bit, you start to develop what's acceptable within your organisation. So everything is coachable. So from an S&C point of view, does a player put the weights back in the way that they found them? Do they turn up on time for the meetings with you? How do, like I grew up in a boxing gym, so... You'd see things like people would be in the ring and they'd just sort of swallow a bit of water and then spit the rest of it on the floor. Is that acceptable in mm. your culture? Are you prepared to address it or are you turning a blind eye to it? Everything becomes really coachable. And as S&C staff, you're in the best position to observe these behaviours. What I'd say it needs is be really clear about the behaviours, the rules of the game, and know that you're going to get support from the rest of the coaching staff to reinforce the behaviours that you're going to witness on a regular basis. I saw the um, what Simon released as well about the, the Man United um, behaviours from I think that was from years ago, wasn't it? About yeah, yeah. So this is a key point that that what I wanted to avoid in the book is gimmickry. I don't like people copying just because they've read about it somewhere else. Yeah. So this is a point I'd say about. There's a, there was a really good book a few years ago that came out about the New Zealand uh, rugby union team and everyone then started saying, we're going to sweep the sheds, we're <laughs> yeah. going to have a no dickhead policy. Yeah. And my challenge to people when I hear them say that is, 
why are you going to do it? And when their only answer is, because I've read about New Zealand doing it, I go, I, I know why New Zealand do it. Yeah. Why are you going to do it? Yeah, you're you're a New different Zealand. culture. Yeah. It's different. Mm. So my turn is, come up with your own version of it. Don't copy the Barcelona examples. Come up with your own version of it. There might be some overlap, yeah. but you will always have your own version of it. And I think that becomes important because... People spot a gimmick a mile off. Mm. If they sense that you're doing it just because it's like you bought it off the shelf or you read about it, but there's no real thought and application to what this means for us, people spot it. And what you find is when things start going wrong, the first thing that then gets rid of is the gimmick that you were telling everyone that they needed to buy into. Yeah. So people just become cynical of it. So it requires that extra little bit of thought to say, what's our own version of the Barcelona way? Yeah. And just going into, I know you touched before on, on sort of uh, boxing and, and your background as yeah. well. So just fill the guys in. So I've heard you speak before on your background and how you grew up in the boxing gym and what yeah, you learned, how you looked at coaches. So just go into that for the guys because that really fascinates me. Yeah, so I, I feel really blessed that um, I, I grew up as the son of a boxing coach. So I, my whole childhood was spent, my playground was a boxing gym. So um, my dad, uh, man called Brian Hughes, um, in the 1960s, set up a boxing gym in, in the city of Manchester, part of the uh, city called Collyhurst. I mean, it's officially classed as Europe's third poorest district, that sort of Collyhurst Parade area. So that gives you an idea of the kind of social issues and some of the deprivation levels. But he set it up, um, and we grew up in that area ourselves, and uh, he set it up mainly for kids that were disenfranchised, kids that... Uh, wanted just to get off the street and apply themselves in different ways. So what he did that I always found incredible was he then took kids that had never laced a pair of gloves on right the way through and he had five lads go on to become world champions but he had a whole heap of others that were British, European, Commonwealth champions or did well in the Olympic Games and things like that. But equally at the same time he touched an awful lot of other kids that were never going to reach those sort of heights in sport where it was about bringing them into a culture where they were valued, they were respected, but they learned the benefits of discipline and teamwork and, and harmony and things like that. So I grew up in that. That was my playground. So I was incredibly fortunate to get an insight into how powerful a culture could be, regardless of the dysfunctional elements of society around it. That part of uh, the world was a safe haven where people could come and flourish, where other parts of their life might seem like a car crash. And what I also got to see as well was the benefit of how powerful a coach can be. So a lot of the work was, I think what I quickly came to recognise was that I'd say 20% of it was about technical skills, being able to teach somebody to slip a punch, to execute a game plan and things like that. But so much of it was about the psychology of it, being able to get inside somebody's head and get them to understand it. So my dad... Um, I mean, he, was, he left school himself and he was uh, illiterate at 15 and he taught himself to read and write in the years uh, when he was doing this and then sort of just educated himself in it. So he, he had mentors, like he had a guy called Jimmy Murphy that was Sir Matt Busby's assistant. So Jimmy Murphy used to come into the gym and sort of just sit and chat with my dad. And again, I was incredibly privileged to have been able to join in their conversations. There was a man called Manny Stewart from Detroit at the Cronk Gym um, he'd offered my dad a job um, to go and work with him so I, I, I got to meet him Angelo Dundee, Muhammad Ali's trainer, these were characters that I was sort of growing up around and getting to witness what they were doing and they were just sharing so much of their own knowledge and expertise themselves so I feel incredibly lucky that that was my environment that I grew up in and I always think boxing is one of those sports that that it doesn't, um, it doesn't make character, it reveals character. So we were talking just off air before about some, about some guys that uh, I know my dad trained. And I, and I always think the boxing ring was a great way of just revealing uh, characteristics, both good and bad. So if somebody was um, quietly courageous, that would come out in the ring, they would find a resolve to, uh, to get through difficult moments. If you found somebody that was maybe a little bit in, uh, ill-disciplined in the ring, that ill-discipline would be revealed at some stage. And when I say ill-disciplined, there was one guy he used to train that 
was always five minutes late for training. Mm. And he'd always turn up five minutes late. And again, from an S&C point of view, this might be relevant. You get somebody turning up five minutes late for training. And he was a sort of charismatic lad and everyone would laugh because he'd make a joke and things like that. But that five minutes indicated a lack of discipline. He was a sort of lad that he wouldn't set his alarm to run, but when he got up, he would run. Yeah. So all that kind of thing demonstrated that the characteristics he was demonstrating as a person was that he had... that. He never went to find that inner resolve. He never had. He never dug deep enough to find out if he could do it. And there was a fight he had once at the Manchester Evening News Arena for it was a minor world title belt. And his talent meant he coasted the first six rounds easily, but he'd never put his opponent away. And the last six rounds didn't come down to talent. It was just down to resolve, just the ability, the ability to dig deep and find a way through it. And he he. He couldn't do it because he'd never done it. It wasn't something he'd ever practised. It wasn't a character trait. He knew he had the resolve to do so. From the sixth round onwards, he was coming back and saying, how many rounds left? How many rounds left? So he was then, he'd gone from fighting to win to then fighting not to lose. And he ended up losing it on points. And I remember sat in the dressing room with him afterwards as he was breaking his heart crying. And the point was, you didn't lose the fight tonight. You've lost it over the last 10 years. Mm. You've lost it every time you turned up five minutes late for training. You lost it every time that you turn your alarm off and went back to sleep rather than get up and, and run. Mm. And I think from an S&C point of view, the boxing club was a great example of just of seeing how when you put people under um, sometimes stress, character often gets revealed. And as S&C coaches, you see this more vividly than I think I would argue that most people uh, within sports do. But that was very much my background yeah. uh, with the boxing. And what, because um, I know you spoke about like cultural architects and yeah. how we can use those guys to, to uh, get the most from a programme. And I think that's really powerful in, in an S&C sense because yeah. that can relate to the whole team then. So just can you touch on that and how you've, yeah, maybe how you've used it possibly within football, but then how you think it could be used as well? Yeah, so the idea of a cultural architect says that, that so it's an idea that I developed in the Barcelona book I was describing about that says the real power within an organisation is in the dressing room. So a head coach can come in and the research says a head coach impacts the team's performance by about 10%. But, I mean, you can make it a lot worse as well, but your maximum is 10%. So we get caught up in this cult that's all about the manager, it's all about the head coach. So you look at the narrative at the minute about what Pep has done to City, what's happening with Jose at United... And we almost just view it through the lens of the head coach. The reality is the strength of the dressing room is in the dressing room. It's that peer group. So so your cultural architects are almost your leaders without title, the guys in the dressing room that run the show for you. And you need to have uh, people that buy into the culture doing that. Now, leaders will emerge in the dressing room on two criteria, technical or social. So they'll either be your best players or they'll be the like the larger-than-life characters that are gregarious, that when they speak, people listen to them. Now, the key is you wouldn't... So however they emerge, they'll be the two criteria. You want them to be people that are reinforcing the behaviours that we spoke about at the start of this podcast. So whatever... So at Barcelona, the humility, the hard work, the team first. Your team have to demonstrate. Your cultural architects need to reinforce that and do it because... We're pack animals by nature, so we follow the lead. We want to fit into the pack. And if you've got people dictating the direction of it, they become key. So from an S&C coach, if you were trying to introduce a new programme, my argument, my suggestion would be go and find out who your cultural architects are and invest time selling it to them first. Get them to understand the benefits of the programme, why you're doing it, because they'll be the ones that will either make it or break it for you. Don't just go and introduce it to the group and everybody sees it for the first time. Be smart about it and get them to buy into it. Yeah. So the Barcelona book tells the story of how before Guardiola took over as the head coach 10 years ago, the three cultural architects in the dressing room at Barcelona were the Brazilian footballer Ronaldinho, the Portuguese player Deco and uh, the Cameroon striker Samuel Leto. Now those three guys, the cultural architects, hated each other. So in the two years when things were going wrong, they spent all the time sniping and firing shots at each other. So the culture there was toxic. 
So Guardiola's first demand when he took the job on was get rid of those three because mm. I want to start again and I want to develop guys that really embody everything that we stand for. So it's significant that four of his, his first appointments were the footballer Jared PK from United, um, Mascarano from Liverpool, and then he promoted Pedro and Busquets from yeah. the B team. And Guardiola was on record as saying part of his reason that he was attracted to those players, apart from being great footballers, was they didn't have silly haircuts, tattoos or earrings. Mm. And when he was asked to articulate it, his view was, that told me something about those type of characters. They didn't want to stand out in a crowd. They wanted to fit into a group, not stand out in a group, which told him that, that he felt they could contribute to being cultural architects. So every group has them. Yeah. Dysfunctional groups have them. They're often people behaving in a more selfish manner. It's more about their own self-interest rather than that. And that can dictate it. So there's a brilliant stat like quoting in the Barcelona dressing room. When Ronaldinho was sort of going off the rails a little bit, 10 out of the 21 players in the first team squad separated or divorced from their partners in, this, in the 18 months that he was pursuing this kind of party and lifestyle. So that gives you an idea of just how powerful these characters can be. Yeah. So the challenge is, if you're an S&C coach, do you know who the cultural architects in your dressing room are? Are they the right ones? And then are you getting them bought into the programmes that you're introducing? Because they will make it or break it. And do you think they can be overshadowed sometimes by other people? Because would you look at a dressing room and think, okay, well, they could have the effect, but they're not being able to have like, the influence that they possibly could because yeah. they've not got maybe the pedestal? Or it's a brilliant question. It. It's a brilliant question, Ben, and it's one that I spend an awful lot of time um, when I go and work with teams. First of all, I will say... so. The first thing I'll do is establish the behaviours. What are the behaviours that are not up for negotiation? One of the quickest ways I then do it is get the dressing room to vote. Say, give me your top five players that embody these behaviours. And what you find is that, that it's not always the people you assume, the ones that are maybe the loudest or the most gregarious are not always the ones that the dressing room will acknowledge as being the embodiment. So I'll give you an example. There was one lad in a, a, a Premier League football dressing room I went into that... He was being isolated from the rest of the squad. So he'd, he'd, he'd sort of come into the squad from a lower league and he'd done what any sensible kid would do. He went, I can make a few quid here. So his lifestyle was spot on. His diet was great. He was doing extras. He was training. He was like the model professional. But the rest of the squad hated him because a lot of his behaviours weren't the norm. And there was all kinds of things that was happening to him. So that FIFO effect I spoke about, he was very firmly on the fuck off bit of it. Yeah. Where somebody had broke his nose in training. He was sort of like, when they had team nights out, he was excluded from the WhatsApp group. So he was very much on the outside. When we identified trademark behaviours and I asked the players to rate it, they put him in it. Mm -hmm. And when I spoke to one of the players, I said, how is he in it given his status? He went, I don't like him, but I do respect him. You didn't ask us whether we liked him. You asked us whether he embodied the behaviours. Mm -hmm. And this lad went from being very much an outsider to being one of the cultural architects in the group. And the reason is because when you can give those cultural architects some evidence and you can go to them and say, you know what, 70, 17 out of those 23 players sat in that dressing room have scored you in the top five, it often gives them an, an encouragement and a confidence to say, I can speak up. Because you're saying to him, I've got evidence to say, when you speak, you will be listened. Your your behaviours are respected in this dressing room enough that people that you've got enough credit to call people out or, or call them in. So I often feel that's just a really quick way of doing it. That If you're not sure, if you're listening to this thinking, who are my architects? Maybe just think about um, doing it as a vote amongst the players, get players to score it. Yeah. A really interesting way is get them to score your bottom three as well. Yeah. Because when I've done that, that's often really quite illuminating. Not that always some that of the, you think. Not always that you think. Like, again, I've been in some dressing rooms where you, uh, there was a star striker, a lad that was really highly regarded externally, but was stinking the dressing room out. The dressing room just said, not having him. Because yeah. he's selfish, he's arrogant, he's rude, he's abrasive. And everything, his behaviours... Behind the scenes, so so they weren't blinded by the fact that he scored goals for them. They saw the process, the everyday behaviours, 
to be somebody that said he won't last anyway. At the minute, he's having a lucky run, but these behaviours mean that he won't sustain it, which, in the case of this particular guy, he hasn't done. Yeah. So, the dressing room, again, it's similar to the boxing gym. It doesn't make character, but it reveals character. And what your job is, is to find out who are the characters that embody the right behaviours that are going to stand up and lead for them. They're your cultural architects. And I suppose that's that um, story that you're telling now is like the polar opposite of like the Barcelona way, isn't it? Because I know you, you say that in your book about Ibrahimovic getting there and, and him talking about Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, that they were like... Um, always compliant with the coach yeah, and they were like school kids yeah, yeah. yeah so that I suppose that was that was their culture setting in um, setting stone I suppose wasn't it and he was like the outsider coming into it well he's a really good example of, of, of how they were prepared to back the culture and not get blinded by like the like the bright lights of superstardom yeah so they brought him in and they told him humility hard work and team first is a way to do it and he agreed with it but then, when he then the, he tells it in his own words, he phoned the club and said, "Are you going to send a private jet to collect me from my home in Milan?" Yeah. And they went, "No, get a, we'll get you a flight like everyone else." And then his first day of training, he turns up and they give him the keys to a club Audi. He says, "What's this for?" He said, "Don't drive your fancy cars into training. We don't drive sports cars into training. Drive your club Audi in." And he agrees with that. And then the first time he hits a bit of a difficult patch, when he gets dropped for his very first, he gets dropped for a game against a team called Almeria. In his own words, he goes, fuck that, I'll drive my Lamborghini into training. I'm yeah. not doing what they say. I'm going to show them who's boss around there. So he immediately, so he agrees when everything's going well, because that's easy to do. Yeah. When you hit a difficult patch, character gets revealed, and his character shows that actually humility wasn't there for him. This is a guy that calls him, he talks about himself in the third person, which gives you a clue. <laughs> Tells you a lot. Yeah. <laughs> The hard work may be, but sometimes I wonder how much of it is done for aesthetics rather than yeah. for the benefit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like anyone posting pictures of themselves on Instagram of the body. In the yeah, you're wondering that. And then the team first evidently wasn't there. It was all it was about himself. If he wasn't if he wasn't the centre of attention, he he wasn't interested in the rest of it. So his behaviours kept transgressing the rules of the game, which is why they got rid of him for for 10 months later. Mm. So they took a huge loss on him. And when I asked the people, when I interviewed them for the book on why they did it, they just went, great bloke. They, so I always find this interesting. You can the, you can challenge people on behaviour without challenging them. So it's like the old saying, you know, you can behave like a dickhead without being a dickhead. Mm. And what people, when I interviewed players around him, it was really interesting. They went, oh, no, he was a great bloke. And everyone spoke about him as a bloke really highly. Mm. They just said his behaviours just didn't fit. So it wasn't the right environment for him. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. rather than... But I think it's really interesting that they didn't get blinded by the fact that they went, but he's a great sense of forward. They went, no, no, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't matter how good he is. It goes back to that phrase, your talent gets you in the dressing room, your behaviour decides if we're going to keep you in the dressing room. Mm. And I suppose with that as well, it takes quite a strong coach to stick to that, doesn't it? Because a lot would be in that situation and maybe be like, well, we've spent X amount on him and we need to keep him in the team. And for well, a coach yeah, to turn yeah. around and go, actually, we need to we need to get rid and stick by our morals. That's a, a strong and big, powerful message. It takes a lot of courage to do it. I don't, I don't underestimate the courage it takes to do that. Uh, but you look at any successful culture... That happens time and time again. You look at... I mean, it's easy to talk about Ferguson at United, but because we because we remember the success of the last 20 years of his reign, but his first six years, he was still doing it then. You look at the likes of McGrath and Whiteside, mm. you know, big characters that were huge favourites on the terraces, and he gave them the opportunity to fit into his culture of discipline and rigour and then they were still going out and getting pissed mm. and eventually he got rid of them. Do you know what I mean? Because he'll, he'll tell you himself, he's on record as just saying, you can't compromise on what you stand for. I, so a coach is judged on two criteria, I always think, when it comes to culture. Transparency and consistency. You ask any player and say, what do you judge the coach on? They don't say how good he is on the training ground. That's, all, that's secondary. They'll say, he tells me what he wants and then he applies what he wants. So tell me what you stand for and then just apply it and do that consistently across the board. 
You go into any group, people will tell you that's what they want off their head coach. So the first time you start compromising what you said you were going to stand for, people sense either a weakness in you or the sense that maybe you didn't believe in it that strongly anyway. And that's the kind of thing that, that people will turn a blind eye to it for a long time, but there'll be a period as a leader where you say, I just need you to trust me. I've got no evidence, I just need you to trust me. Mm. And those moments where you've already caved in create a seed of doubt in people's minds that say, well, I'm not sure I'm going to follow you because I'm not sure you believe in it strongly enough. Like, I'll give you an example. that I often used to talk about it with, like when I go into businesses. I remember talking to one business leader once that said, he said, oh, everyone's equal in my organisation. You know, he said, I don't have any hierarchy. If you've got a good idea, it's as good as the next person and you can share it. I remember I was in the reception area where he was telling me this and I said to him, I said, if you don't want me to give me a bit of full feedback, he went, yeah, everyone's equal, give me any feedback you want. I said, it's bollocks what you're saying. <laughs> and he went, well, how can you say that? And I said, you've got reserved car parking spaces for the senior management. So you're not equal. Yeah. The senior managers get a better car parking spot than everyone else does. So when you're saying everyone's equal, but you pull up right outside the building, every time you do it, you contradict. what. So what you say versus what you do is different. Mm. And he went, well, does that really matter? I said, most of the time, no. Most of the time, it's not going to matter. But that 20% of the time where you just need people to follow you on blind faith, it does matter because mm-hmm. they won't follow you because nobody follows a hypocrite. Yeah, We're wired to follow leaders and we're not going to follow somebody that we think is going to take us over the edge of a cliff. So I remember saying to him, I said, you've got two choices, either change what you say you stand for or change your car parking policy. Yeah. And he genuinely said, I'll change my car parking policy. <laughs> <laughs> did no, no, he didn't. He said, he said, I'll change what I stand for. That was it. He said, the car parking will be too difficult. <laughs> so he got mixed up there. But, but you get the idea that you have to know what you stand for. Yeah. And you have to be prepared to say, would I take this all the way? which is what they did at Barcelona. Is this really something we're prepared to live and die by? And if the answer is yes, you don't compromise on it. And that's what a commitment culture demands. You take the flack of selling Zlatan Ibrahimovic for a loss because you believe that the culture is better served by those three behaviours. Yeah. And and you speak a lot as well about um, coaching and storytelling. Yeah. And uh, I think that's great for the guys to hear because that is a big part. We speak a lot in, in S&C in terms of, I suppose, like telling a story to a player on how um, training off the pitch will help them on the pitch and yeah, yeah. how things they're going to do in the gym that they seem completely irrelevant needs to, will actually help performance on the pitch. So I suppose storytelling comes into that a lot, doesn't it? And getting them to believe yeah, I did a book a few years ago where I was really lucky. I, 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 I got to spend three years travelling around the world, both interviewing and then observing elite sports coaches. And what I was looking for is, what do these guys do consistently? So so, so not the content of it, because the variety of sports meant that the content would have been irrelevant to try and capture that uh, and find common ground there. Where the common ground was, was how do they deliver the content that mean that how do you get people to remember what you've just said long after you've delivered it? How do you train people to adopt practices that you want them to do when nobody's watching and all the things that you've just outlined? And what I found was there was five things that they did. So they kept things really simple. They asked lots of questions, got people to think for themselves. They were emotionally smart and intelligent. The language was practical, so they didn't use jargon. They just spoke really everyday language. But it was the final one that you're picking up on there that I think is significant. They told stories. Mm. They were great storytellers. So the acronym I use is STEPS, but it's the final one, the the final S, the storytelling, that I think is really key that anyone can use. Because it taps into an idea, it's called the Kolmogorov complexity, that says if I can tell you a story, it's named after a Russian psychologist, the name's not important, but it's the impact that is. If I tell you a story, you'll remember more information than if I just give you some stats. So if you're in... So in, uh, in S&C and you're trying to get somebody to do it and you say, right, it might be a certain percentage that people will improve by or you want them to do so many reps or, I mean, I'm, I'm not well versed in that, but you might have, say, three or four stats that you want to give people to get them to understand why doing this particular exercise, the benefits it'll give you. Tell them a story, they'll remember it. Give them the stats, they won't. So if you were to say to them, hey, listen, I'll tell you a little example of one athlete that I was working with that 
was always cynical about doing weights, for example, never used to want to do weights. And then one day I persuaded him, just give it a go, see how it does. And because he did that, he ended up being, uh, improving his strength. And because he did that, it meant that he was able to, his endurance was so much better. And then he ended up winning the race that he was in. So I'm, I'm, so in giving you that example there, I'm giving you the best structure of how to tell a story as well. So it doesn't matter if, if you're listening to this thinking, I don't really have any stories I'm not sure you do we all have stories you all have examples of like an athlete you've worked with where you've made a significant difference to them or you've read something about somebody or you've heard an anecdote about it put it in a story but put your point in there Mm. with it and the six sentences that help everyone structure a story the six sentences come from Pixar the animation studio so six sentences is start off by saying something let me tell you a story because what happens when you do that is you open the brain up. The brain goes, oh, great. That's catnip to a brain that says, oh, I love this. Then you establish a pattern of behavior. So you say, every day, this was happening. Then you break the pattern. Your third sentence is, one day, we did something different. Then what you do is you follow it up and say, because of that, so what are the consequences of doing something different? And then you say, and now, because of that, so you give them two consequences that reinforce why you do it. And then you go, and then finally... This is the consequence of it. So it doesn't matter what you're saying. So you, so again, to just repeat myself, you go, I had an athlete that never used to lift weights. This is one that I've heard it used about Steve Redgrave. You know, Steve Redgrave, uh, so let me tell you a story about Steve Redgrave, right? Steve Redgrave used to say, if I wanted to lift weights, I'd become a weightlifter. Couldn't see any benefit of it. And every day he just used to refuse to do it. One day his coach, Jürgen Grobler, gave him some stats from the East German women's rowing team that proved that they were stronger than what he was. Because of that, he decided to get in the in the gym and start actually taking weight seriously. Because of that, his strength transferred itself out onto the rowing leg that he was on. Until finally, he's a five times Olympic gold medalist that yeah. <laughs> advocates weight training. Yeah, I've just told you a story using that same structure on something that gets my point across that weight training is important. Mm. Now, you imagine if you're a coach using that and you can just weave it in that you just give it, it sticks in people's minds and gives them a reason to want to listen to you. It's actually um, really sort of fascinating, but also um, it's good timing as well because we speak a lot now about how we present stats in a way to coaches. Yeah. And I know Richard Evans spoke about it on the on the seminar as well on how, it, how they present it and they try and make it very visual. And it's not, I've never heard like storytelling as being something that they've, Use for that, but I think it. I think that would work really well for for technical coaches. Yeah, like um, like I'll, I'll give you an example. We did something, and again, I'm I'm not betraying the confidence to give you this, but um, um, I do a lot of work with coaches where I try and say to them, "What's your story behind this?" So if you're going to get an idea in, I, there was one rugby coach I did some work with where he wanted to emphasise the importance of uh, tackles, and we spoke about the message he wanted to give. So. It's quite a dry topic to me because I'm not, I'm not a rugby player. So, I, so, and there was a lot of technical skills in it. So, what we came up with was the idea of we got the players to sit in a room. We turned the lights off and we said, right, imagine you're in bed tonight. Your wife's next to you. So, your kids are in the next room sleeping soundly. But four o'clock in the morning, you hear the window going downstairs. He said, and your wife wakes you up and says, there's somebody downstairs. You listen for a few seconds and realise there is somebody in your house. What are you going to do? Now, who doesn't have an opinion on that? So suddenly <laughs> you're thinking, oh, fucking hell, what would I do? <laughs> so you call the writers and go, right, what would you do? And then they came up with like someone, right, I'd go and get my kids, I'd barricade them in the room, I'd make sure everyone was safe. Okay, good, right, we've established that. I tried to find the place. Your telephone line's been cut. Mm-hmm. You've got to handle this yourself. What are you going to do now? So we've got them to understand that, right, I have to go and do this. And then we got them to say, right, so how are you going to take this on now? And then what we got them to do, the players were doing this themselves. They came up with three with three things. He said, right, first of all, I need to use an element of surprise. So I have to go down there. I need to be quick. So I need to go in and, do, and then I need to be completely committed. Mm. So when I go down there, <laughs> I need to sneak down. I need to go in, balls out, but I need to do it fast. I don't need to give them time to think. So we went, right, good. So we've got three criteria now. Speed, surprise, commitment. Let's talk about tackling now on Saturday. 
So you've got them emotionally invested in that discussion. Yeah. Then we say, right, so what will speed, surprise and commitment look like in this area of the field? What tackles will we use here? And it just was a different level of conversation because everybody was engaged and involved in it mm. to recognise the same principles apply. Does that make sense? Yeah, but, definitely, because they're creating it in the mind as well, aren't they? They're coming they up with the, the answer. You're not giving them much. Yeah, exactly. So you got, we're just following your idea. Yeah. So now they own it. So now are they likely to, to take it more seriously than somebody sat there going, right, we're going to talk about like going in hard, fast, and quick and attack. That's dry. So talking about about dealing with a burglar yeah. is a different level of conversation. But you get the emotion side, emotional side of it as well, don't you, when you bring family and stuff like that into it. Too. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So it's all so all of that is just a really simple example of how... But it does require thinking up front. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that. I, now, at international with some of the international coaches, and, and, and I know your listeners are, are busy people, so maybe this... this this ratio doesn't quite work out. But I see international rugby coaches invest about seven hours preparation to deliver a 20-minute message. And I always think that's a really decent indicator to show you that it requires a lot of thinking to be able to land your message really effectively. That no, that, that, And I hope it dissuades people of thinking that don't care how charismatic or talented or knowledgeable you are, you can't just turn up and wing it. Yeah. You need to think about how you're going to deliver your message mm. in the most effective way. It requires that investment of time to make sure your impact is as strong as it can be. And I suppose that goes full circle to when we started it as well, is that it's getting that original message in place and knowing what your philosophies are going to be and, and behaviours before you can even start to think about... Well, I'll give you a really good example. I, I was doing some work recently with the team that I think it, it, it like maybe emphasises the ratio for S&C uh, and sports science coaches, that the question I asked the team was, divide up your best performance. If you think that all sports teams are judged on, what's the outcome? How are you going to perform on a Saturday afternoon? And I said, divide up. So think about your best performance. How much of it is down to hard skills, what you do in the gym, in the weight room, on the field, things like that, stuff we can all easily measure. Mm. And how much of it is down to soft skills? Soft skills are your time spent together, the social cohesion, just confidence, how you talk to each other. What's the ratio between soft and hard skills of your best performance? And I've yet to go into any elite team that will tell you it's anything less than 30, 70. Mm. 30 of it is hard skills, 70 of it is down to the soft skills. Yeah. So my next question then is, let's have a look at your training plan for the next week. Where are you spending most of your time? Mm. And the reality is most of the time is spent doing the hard skills. Yeah. You go, you don't want to get any better there. Mm. And, I, and I don't mean that to be flippant, but in terms of that, that you will make small incremental improvements doing the hard skills and doing more of it. But you're telling me your best results come from the soft skills, but you don't invest any time in it. Yeah. Why do you expect to get any better? And that's the challenge that I'd say to any S&C guys listening to this that go, don't underestimate the value of getting players just talking, creating an environment in in your own area, your own domain, where those social skills can still flourish and thrive, get people. And that's where the behaviours become really key. You reinforce the behaviours. You come into this part of the business. This is just the same as when you're out on the training field. These, tre- these trademark behaviours mm. are still going to be applied. And you get people sort of catching each other in and out and that social glue is hugely, hugely beneficial. I think it's funny you say that because we're now 11 episodes in and literally every episode has come down to relationships with players and it's all down to the soft skills and I think every every person I've had on the podcast so far has mentioned that. So it's <laughs> oh, funny. that's reassuring. Yeah. And, and genuinely, we didn't speak about that before. No, no, not at all. But that is funny that you should come up with that. But it is. It's like, I remember I referenced Angelo Dundee who um, I'd met a few times when I was a kid who was Muhammad Ali's coach. I remember he used a lovely phrase that, even as a kid, I scribbled it down. He said, I don't work with boxers. I work with men that just happen to box. Mm. And it was that idea of working with people that just are doing a job. Do you know what I mean? It's not, I don't define them by by the job. I define them as the person behind it. And I think it's, I mean, I'm reassured that on the 11 other podcasts that, that that message is coming across, but 
we, that we are in the people business. Yeah, hundred percent. We speak about it loads, and like I say, every, every person we spoke to has, has mentioned it and got into it in quite a lot of detail. And even the most technical presentations that we've had on our network meetings and things like that, it's always come full circle. Yeah. Tom Allen, who's down at Arsenal, spoke about it. He presented this amazing presentation about what Arsenal do and the stats that they gather. Yeah, yeah. And literally finished it by saying, but if you don't have a relationship with players, <laughs> it's irrelevant. And that's that's what it comes down to, isn't it? I was hoping that you've coached yesterday. It's a really interesting observation that you're making because I was talking to this youth coach the other day and I said to him, like the kids in your in, in your team, I said, I got them to describe the kids you enjoy coaching. So do the kids that you enjoy. And not one of the coaches that I asked the question of said, oh, it's the best passer. It's the kid that can tackle really well. It's mm. the kid that can is faster than everyone else. Not one of them mentioned any technical skills. Mm. You know, I went, I like the kid that's coachable. I like the kid that's really polite. I like the kid that yeah. turns up and wants to have a bit of fun. So it's all about the personal thing. And that. So we recognise that from a very young age. But then, like you say, when you maybe get into the professional ranks, we then start to transfer it into... We focus more and put more emphasis on the technical skills when the reality is we're still judging them on that same criteria. Yeah. Is somebody a dickhead or is, the, is somebody a really decent person? Mm. You know, that idea of what's their character, what like what is it revealing about them? Yeah. Oh, amazing. No, I really appreciate you taking the time of doing this, Damien. And, uh, Oh, if, if, if any of the guys haven't seen or heard of your books, I know I'm working through the Barcelona one at the moment <laughs> and I'll be getting the others definitely. Oh, well, um, thank you. But what are the others that you've got out at the moment? So I've done a few books. Um, I did um, the very first one I did was about 15 years ago called Liquid Thinking. And that was like just a whole series of interviews I did with sort of elite performers to talk about the psychology of what they did. So I interviewed people like Richard Branson, went and interviewed people like Muhammad Ali. Um, Ferguson at United people like that and then I've done a few other books I did a book called The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset which was those interviews with those coaches so that STEPS acronym we've talked about I did a book on Alex Ferguson called How to Think Like Ferguson which is very much about how he created the culture at Manchester United so I've done a few different books like that um, and my wife always calls me a secret geek because uh, <laughs> uh, although I don't necessarily come from an academic background originally, uh, I have got that element where I love so I love doing the writing. I try and I try and take some quite complex uh, intellectual ideas and try and sort of bring them to life for people. So it's not about so it's about how do I apply these? How do I take these away and do something useful with it mm. in my own world? So. I love doing that and I love trying to write in that way. But listen, if, if, if anyone's good enough to listen to this podcast, uh, if people want to get in touch and they've got any particular questions, I'm more than happy. I mean, they don't need to read the books. I'm happy to pick up Brilliant. any questions whether they want to get in touch with us. Where, where's the best place to do that? Is it Well, they can drop Twitter me a line. So I've got, I've got um, a website where there's a contact page called liquidthinker. Dot com. I'll put all this in the show that. notes as well. So for, for the guys. Great, yeah, but then I'm I'm liquid thinker on Twitter. Yeah, uh, and I try and pick up that at least once a day. Where if there's anyone that just wants to write with a question or an observation, I'll pick it up and get back to them on that as well. But because if people are good enough to listen to give up the time and listen to this, more than happy to to help support them if they want it. No, amazing and again I appreciate your time and uh, oh, all, it, the, all the best in the recovery I know yeah they've got me foot in this pot so uh, <laughs> yeah I think it'll be a long one I think it's end of January before they're going to start considering taking it off so I'll be hopping along between be now and then sprinting about in no time I hope so <laughs> <laughs> well thanks a lot mate oh, thank you I've loved it thanks for having me on Massive thank you to Damien for recording the podcast with me. He was grateful enough to invite me over to his home and we sat in his living room, had a great chat, which I hope you all enjoyed. You can go and follow Damien on Twitter. He's at Liquid Thinker. He's got loads of great books out. I've I'm just working through um, the Barcelona way at the moment and it's a great, really, really good book. Um, Damien's been around some top coaches and practitioners and you can tell by the way he speaks and his experiences um, he's also got other books out there called Liquid Thinking and also The Winning Mindset um, some of the biggest takeaways for me were the storytelling side of coaching Damien always tells uh, great stories about 
previous experiences that he's had with players and also how he uses t- stories in his coaching as well to get the most out of players and to get the most out of coaches too. Also, the work he does in, that include cultural architects. I think this is something that we can take away as a coach and try and think about and how we can implement into our daily practice and the players that we can use to affect our sessions in a positive way and the looking at our group and our, our squad of players to see who the cultural architects are and, and how we can use them as a positive in our coaching. And then also the background of Damien. So he, he, he's spoken before and I've listened to him before about how his background was in boxing, how his father was include, uh, involved in a boxing gym when he was younger and that's where he started watching coaches and seeing how coaches worked and and seeing how minimal you had to be with your actual coaching to get messages across and he tells some great stories about how his dad worked with um, boxers when they were in the corner and they had just those few vital seconds to get coaching cues across and they were able to do it in a really minimalistic manner so that I think that's really fascinating. Damon's amazing with obviously hosting me at his house but also I'm, I'm truly grateful for the fact that he's given us one of his books. So he gave us a copy of the Barcelona way and he signed it. And what we're going to do is we're going to run a competition for you guys to try and win the book now as well. So all you have to do to enter the competition is go over to iTunes and leave us a review. We'll then um, pick a winner of the competition. Uh, the closing date of the competition will be the 23rd of January. So get your review in before the 23rd of January 2019. We'll pick someone at random and then we'll get the, the book sent out to you. And like I say, it is, it is a really, really fascinating book. It goes into how um, the culture at Barcelona was not only created, but also how it's, it's been maintained throughout the years. He talks of the effect of Johan Cruyff. Um, passing on information on to Guardiola and how it's just ingrained in the way they work and it is a really really fascinating book Um, and it's something that I think any coach can take loads of vital information from so head over to iTunes leave us a review and that'll enter you into the competition and then like I said on the 23rd of January we'll draw out a winner and we'll get the book sent out to you but again, massive thank you to Damien for coming on to the podcast. To get someone on like Damien was, was amazing. And for us to keep getting guests on like Damien, we need to share the show. So please go out, subscribe to the show, and share it with friends, family, colleagues, whoever you think will benefit from the information that we're putting out there. Also, go and give us a follow. So we're on Twitter, at FootballFitFed, Instagram, at FootballFitFed. The website is FootballFitFed.com. And if you'd like to give us any feedback or any guest recommendations, our email is mail at footballfitfed.com. Again, massive thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Damien. I certainly enjoyed going speaking to him, so I hope you took loads of information from it. And like I say, um, any feedback is welcome. Speak to you next week.